Welcome to The Rounds, a podcast of Marshfield Clinic Health System. I'm your host, Adam Hocking. The Rounds brings together medical experts to discuss fresh, fascinating, and important topics from the world of healthcare. Most of what keeps a person healthy happens outside a doctor's office. Things like affordable housing, access to healthy food, the quality of schools, and having places to build social connections all factor into the health of a community and its residents. But what does that mean for the providers and the health systems that care for those communities? From working to improve farm safety to partnering with schools to shape curriculum and fighting the opioid epidemic, Marshfield Clinic Health System is doing more than ever to build health education and health services directly into the fabric of its communities. Listen as we discuss this groundbreaking work with Marshfield Clinic Health System Vice President of Community Health and Wellness, Jay Schrader. Jay Schrader, Vice President of Community Health and Wellness for Marshfield Clinic Health System. Thank you for joining us on the podcast today. No, thank you for having me. So I think we've got an interesting topic here today, um, one that is sort of growing in the healthcare sphere when we're talking about healthcare that's determined outside of the traditional healthcare space of a doctor's office, a provider's office. Um, first, can you talk about what your role is as Vice President of Community Health and Wellness? Um, so I actually have a really exciting and interesting role. It's relatively new within the health system, although community health is not new itself. Uh, public health is, has been around for a long time in, in health settings and in communities. Uh, my role has been uh, relatively new the last year and a half. Um, basically, my job is to work with our communities across our service area um, to work on improving the overall health and well-being of the communities we serve. It's part of our mission and vision uh, that we have here at the health system. Um, beyond that, uh, working with our communities, which I can talk about a little bit, uh, what that really means. I also have this component of wellness, which is really focusing on uh, our patients and our uh, security health plan members and working through various uh, aspects of, uh, of making individuals healthy through uh, prevention and uh, health coaching services, making sure they're getting the right preventative care, um, working on um, lifestyle modifications and behavior modifications uh, and so forth and so on. The community health side is extremely exciting for uh, for me um, uh, and the health system. It is relatively new, um, and I think it's been uh, it's a very hot topic because of um, the aspect and the component it can bring. Uh, for example, um, you know, looking at county health ranking models, we know that, and and social determinant health models, we know that you know twenty percent of an individual's health is actually impacted within the clinical care model. The rest is uh, where people work, live, and play. Uh, the environment uh, that they they live in, uh, the behaviors that they uh, um, um, have when they're outside the walls, such as smoking, tobacco, diet, etc., um, and, and uh, hereditary is a piece of that as well. The exciting thing about uh, community health is it really does focus in on, um, you know, zip code is a better predictor of your health than actually your, uh, your genetics. Um, and, and I think that that's something that people are starting to understand. Um, we have example after example uh, of, of what that means. Um, so 
for me, the the you know I started here um, in the health system eight years ago with Security Health Plan, um, and was hired to build a community health program for the health plan, which was very innovative at that time and still is today. Many health plans don't have that aspect. Uh, Security Health Plan, uh, as a family member of the health system, has really. Um, taken a lead, um, in, in my opinion, across the state in terms of uh, doing community health work. And um, so through the, the health plan, um, you know, the, the program was developed. Um, and, and while at the health plan, I had some opportunity to oversee care management, um, disease management, chronic care, some small stents in pharmacy, and all those pieces along the way to my job today actually just layered on and provided me even more um, of an insight of healthcare and how community health plays into that. So I'm very thankful for that. A year and a half ago, um, the system, uh, as, as it continues to transform, decided that a position that oversees all aspects of community health was important to make sure that we're coordinating, collaborating, that we have uh, strategies and a strategic approach as a system. So the position was born, and today, uh, uh, beyond the health plan and their community efforts um, and our clinical uh, sites throughout our service area, we also have the hospitals, um, which are um, you know becoming more and more. And with those hospitals, there are um, IRS and ACA requirements associated with delivering community health. So we always say that those requirements will naturally or organically be met if we're just delivering good community health services with our community partners. That's my job. You talked about zip code being a a predictor of folks' health outcomes and their overall health. We're in a rural healthcare environment here in central Wisconsin, northern Wisconsin, and even western Wisconsin. And we know uh, the Marshfield Clinic health system patient population is typically uh, older than state and national averages, has more, more chronic illness. Can you talk about what the extra challenges uh, are in a rural healthcare environment, what challenges does that present from a community health perspective? The, I mean, the, the, I love the way you frame that. There are certainly challenges, and I would um, opine that they're more significant in a rural setting than urban. That's just me. Um, but they're really around the social determinants of health. So to your point, um, you know, we are looking at an older population, typically, um, you know, less income. Um, uh, barriers such as transportation are significant when you're talking about health care. So uh, the idea that somebody will uh, jump in a vehicle and travel an hour and a half, two hours to get to one of our facilities may not work like it used to anymore. And that's where telehealth and other services are so invaluable. Um, but, uh, you know, the rural healthcare setting, uh, you know, we, we deal with a lot of different things besides transportation. Uh, you know, we lack um, uh, technology. Uh, we lack broadband internet. So those services that uh, urban areas can take advantage of, of, uh, of um, for their patients and their communities, we just have that extra challenge of trying to reach out those individuals in a different way. Um, besides that, you know, being rural, um, uh, there's a number of things related to social isolation for a number of our members, and that's a, a critical component of overall health and well-being. Uh, you know, there's not the uh, the next door uh, place to gather in a lot of our communities. Uh, you know, we preach um, on a clinical side that people need to move more and exercise more. Uh, that's not always feasible in a rural setting. Uh, I, for example, um, I live in the country. And so, um, you know, if I wanted to go for a run or a walk or a bike, 
I'm forced to do that outside on uh, on county roads that are very narrow. They're not safe, and it doesn't always work for people. So, um, you know, uh, the model of saying, well, you need to move more and you need to exercise more and you need to eat healthier isn't that simple. Um, uh, you know, a large portion of our region is really a, a food desert, which means we don't have access to healthy foods. You can't just walk to the farmer's market. So that works in some urban areas, but a chunk of our, uh, a big chunk of our service area doesn't allow those things. Um, if you wanted to get uh, support for quitting tobacco use, that's another challenge. So um, you, you take all those combined and you, you have a, a kind of a recipe that we have to think differently about how we deliver health care. Um, telehealth is one of those. Another one is really going back to an old school model of, uh, you know, home visits in our service area or trying to best leverage technology so we can do it efficiently and effectively for our, our patients and our community communities. Um, so, you know, those are just a few of the challenges that I see off the top of my head. It's interesting, you know, I, I used to live in the Twin Cities, and you talked about the food desert piece. And that really just struck me now is that, you know, my wife and I used to be able to walk down the street and go to a Whole Foods where there's all kinds of fresh organic food or even quick in and out restaurants that are that are selling healthy options really here. The only place to go get quick food is, is probably a, a fast food restaurant, I would suppose. Um, is that, you know, is, how do you work on that? How do you look at that? How, what is your role in, in advocating for, for change in that area? Right. So if you think of the food piece of it, uh, you know, it's a significant contributor to healthcare. Uh, and the reason I say that is the down and upstream uh, implications around uh, obesity, which we are one of the largest states in the nation, uh, no pun intended, uh, but also, uh, you know, prediabetes and diabetes. Uh, you know, the last report from American Diabetes Association, I believe, uh, predicted within the next 10 to 15 years that 50% of our state would be either prediabetic or diabetic. Um, and the healthcare cost of working with individuals that have diabetes, especially if they're uncontrolled diabetes, is you know in the, in twenty twenty five thousand dollars a year, um, so you know working on nutrition is one aspect of it. Medical management's another aspect of it. Um, but back to your point, uh, you know you you do have to think differently. So you know examples of things that we have uh, tried. Uh, there's always that go to the schools, you know, curriculum development. Uh, try to work with the schools on implementing school based gardens. We've done all that. Uh, schools are tapped. You know, so there's only so much bandwidth a school has in terms of being able to allow you to come in and do these type of things. We've been successful in some of those because of the partnerships and relationships we've formed with schools. Uh, you know, we've invested in in the school-based gardening system, which is in a number of communities is extremely successful. In those models, uh, you know, there we've 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 invested in the facilities, the curriculum, and so actually there's some really cool models where the kids actually are part of the growing season. They help harvest the food. The food gets implemented implemented into the school um, cafeteria system. And so there's a learning component, but then the children also benefit from the um, nutritional component of it as well. Beyond that, uh, you know, there's some new technology that we're looking at in terms of uh, full year-round growing with some of the new gardening systems. We just had some really cool, exciting meetings with some uh, local partners that are showing us this technology and, and how we can have produce harvest uh, uh, food um, all year round that's green and make that a, uh, available to students or in long-term care facilities. Uh, you name the population that you really want to focus in on. Um, and, then, and then thinking differently about how 
how you bridge or pull together healthcare with our community partners. Um, you know, we were currently in, in the midst of uh, close to launching our, uh, the, the, I believe it's the state's first, food pharmacy. Mm-hmm. So uh, in that model, we've partnered with um, Feed My People, uh, Food Bank out of Eau Claire. They serve uh, 19 counties. Uh, they actually produce or uh, serve the local food banks, uh, uh, food pantries, and I believe they serve uh, you know, up to 20 different food uh, pantries or more, um, and and seven million pounds of of uh, food per year. Um, so, with our model of looking at how do you prevent diabetes, and and their model of trying to reduce food insecurity, we we brought it together, signed a partnership in which um, you know they're going to provide food to uh, our. Uh, health system and their patients. So we'll provide healthy, nutritious food via the food uh, bank, um, and and it'll be provided to individuals on a pilot level basis, uh, uh, patients of ours that are diabetic, and 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 then we wrap that all around, wrap it all together with uh, registered dietitian and health coaches to really help people get control of their diabetes. So, uh, point of it is is that there's a cadre. Uh, interventions you can provide. Some are very simple. Some are just investing in communities that have ideas or thoughts or need help. All the way to the more complicated ones where we're trying to integrate uh, healthcare and communities together. Um, but there's really, uh, you know, the way that we approach everything is it's pilot. It's a proof of concept. If it works, we, we move it out and, and move it to communities um, that need it. And if it doesn't, then we try something different. Um, so that's just one, one you know, idea in terms of uh, actually our strategy around trying to address both, um, you know, the diabetes epidemic and the obesity and, and food insecurity kind of all rolling it together. I'm interested in the social isolation piece of, of rural health care. You talked about um, folks, you know, if they want to go exercise, they have to go do it on unsafe roads. We know that a lot of our patients have long drives for health care, which presents costs and convenience barriers. I've also read some articles recently about the health effects of loneliness. Is that something that you guys look at, think about? Is, is that a topic that's sort of on your mind? It's always on our mind, uh, uh, period. But it's not something you uh, just come up with a strategy on. How do you address loneliness or social isolation? Um, So typically on uh, topics like that that we know are extremely important, we try to bake it into everything we do. So it's never forgotten about, but there's not a single strategy that says this is what we're doing on loneliness. Um, trying to connect people um, is can be a challenge, especially in rural health systems or rural uh, um, geographies such as ours. Um, you know, in, in that case, you have to try to um, work with community partners that uh, have networks already in place with a lot of these people and try to figure out not how to replace but enhance their work. Uh, example would be our, our an amazing partner, our um, ADRCs within our service area. They serve a number of our patients. They offer amazing programs. They're good partners. They're regional and even sometimes county-based. Um, but our goal is not to come in there and, and you know, uh, do something that uh, is already being done by them. We want to talk with them. And, and this is not uncommon for us to sit down with community partners and say, how, how can we do this together? This isn't uh, you know, there's a Marshfield health system way. Um, 
but there's also a way to work with community partners. And so, um, you know, it is a new era for us to say, you know, to sit down with communities and say, well, how can this work? Could it work? As opposed to saying, we're just going to offer this program. So, um, yes, there's a lot of literature on that. Technology is absolutely a big piece of that. There's a lot of uh, programs that are popping, whether it be us or us being a part of it or just we're watching programs occur. Um, the simple things like uh, adopt a grandparent programs or programs where individuals in uh, long-term care facilities can uh, come into schools or child care programs and read to the children. Um, those are the type of things that you're not going to see a direct impact on health. You're just not going to see somebody's blood pressure reduced. There's no quality metric associated with this work. Right. But you know, based on, uh, to your point, Adam, that there's research that supports that this is an important component of somebody's overall health and well-being. Um, so you know there's inferences that it's going to do something. Um, but those are the type of programs that we're constantly looking for and seeing if we can integrate them into our existing work. That's interesting because I think about, you know, when people think about the traditional healthcare model, at least in my mind, it's patient provider kind of back and forth. But I think you said, and, and we know from the literature, 80, 85 percent of somebody's health is determined outside the, the clinical space. And and especially in a rural environment, like you said, I, I would imagine partnerships are, are more important than ever. Is that something that's that's growing or evolving? Has that been a recognition recently or has that kind of always been in place? How, how important those community partnerships are? I think it's always been there, but I don't know. I think we've always treated it differently. Mm-hmm. I think we've seen community partners more about uh, optional. Now I think we see them as a necessity. They're, uh, you know, the, the best thing that has come out in the last decade is really the social determinant health model and the county health ranking model uh, and really simplifying it to uh, healthcare executives, community partners around that 2080 rule and saying that we need to think differently about how we deliver healthcare. Community partnerships are critical. They're just absolutely essential. Uh, Matter of fact, we won't do anything unless there's a community partner involved. And there's a lot of reasons for that. Uh, One is sustainability, two is synergy. You know, if there's no synergy, we can have the best program in the world and go and try to deliver it or implement it in a community. If a community's not ready or willing or wanting it, and there's no synergy and we haven't built rapport, that program will fail. So those community partnerships are extremely important. That being said, community partnerships aren't just born. They don't take a week. You don't write a check and say, now we're a partner. You have to build that relationship. And so that takes time. So, you know, at any one time, I would say we have probably a couple hundred bona fide community partners within our program inventory that we're working with on a constant basis. Uh, There's more to be out there. uh, And and I think we do a a good job. We're getting better at trying to gauge those probably non-traditional community partners that we haven't thought of yet. but, uh, you know, bottom line is that uh, we cannot be successful in, in changing health care unless those community organizations have bought in NCS as, uh, as an important partner of theirs. Later today, there's a, a dedication for the, the new Marshall Clinic Health System YMCA, which is a beautiful new facility. Um, the, the YMCA, for folks that don't know, has been in Marshfield for decades, but um, recently went underwent a, a huge renovation and and there's beautiful new facilities for exercise but there's also going to be an expansion of, of programming um, I kind of think of it as a, a community health hub I wonder if you can talk about 
the importance of that project and what it can mean to uh, a community's overall health? So I would say the YMCA is symbolic of that. It's a, a hub. It's a place where people can go. It's iconic for a community like Marshfield to say, um, you know, that the YMCA is representative of things besides exercise equipment. And that's why the health system uh, chose and the YMCA chose together to partner, and now it's the Marshall Clinic Health System YMCA. Uh, there's a lots of opportunity, obviously, for the YMCA and, our, and, and with our health system. A lot of it we haven't even uncovered yet because the doors are just relatively new and opened. Um, but on a ground level, I, I remember those conversations several years ago about you know being approached about what this could look like and uh it was really exciting at that time and the idea of you know uh, um, from birth to, to kind of that grave concept and and co uh, uh bringing together organizations that serve children makes all the sense in the world you reduce overhead expense you you can create efficiencies there's uh, organic ways of connecting on programs and services so you have the alternative school you have the uh, um, uh, the Head Start program, you have our, our youth net program, um, and then you have an amazing child care uh, program up there that now serves a couple hundred children, which all of these address the needs of the community. Um, side tangent is we're not doing stuff that isn't addressing the need of the community. So this is a result of that, um, uh, of, of the community saying we need something. And, and on a personal level, my child uh, attends the YMCA and their uh, program. I sit on their board of directors. Uh, I absolutely 100% believe in what the YMCA is doing. It's an amazing model. Uh, we, can, we have so much more we can learn from it. And one of the things that I really enjoy about my position, as, uh, because it covers such a large service area, is we have... Uh, uh, an opportunity, I would say almost an obligation to figure out what works in communities, pick it up and transplant it into communities that may not have that benefit of knowing yet. And so that's a great, and we've done that over and over again to say that's working here. Have you thought about it here? Um, that's a responsibility that we have. But the YMCA is really, um, you know, if we could have Ys in every community, uh, that would be amazing. They do offer great programs. They're a community-based partner of ours. We really enjoy working with them. But there's much more than just the YMCA. We have our United Ways of Great Organizations, ADRCs, uh, our community uh, foundation here in Marshfield. Uh, it, it really um, um, uh, steps up to the plate time and time again. Um, so I would say, you know, if you look to the Y, it's an amazing, beautiful building. It's it's just, it's a building. It's what's inside that really counts. We've probably been talking about a lot of the things that the Center for Community Health Advancement does, but we haven't kind of named it. Can you talk about, because uh, I know that's a huge proportion of, of your work and what you do, what the Center for Community Health Advancement is and, and sort of what the focus area is of, of that? So we did go through some transformation several years ago, a year and a half ago. It was the Center for Community Outreach. We felt we needed to refresh that title. We wanted to, um, you know, we wanted to announce to our communities that we're really about advancing health. We wanted that verb in there. Um, and and this, the, the former title, Center for Community Outreach, didn't really, um, it, it really didn't tell the story about community health. And that's what we're really about. So the name change was monumental for us because it kind of transformed a lot of different things um, besides just a title of it. And we spent a lot of time, you know, working through this. Uh, one of the first things that I did in my position was to go out and talk to community partners, spent 
weeks upon weeks just meeting with community partners. We, we did a key informant interview. We went around uh, to our local, regional, and statewide partners, um, and, and we actually partnered with another organization out of Stevens Point to do this for us. We didn't want any bias in the answers. We wanted to know what they liked about us, what they were getting from us, what they weren't getting from us, and we learned a lot uh, about what communities and community-based partners uh, thought of, of our work. And so from that, um, you know, that was one component of our effort. The other component was then to take a look at the data. What are the communities telling us they need? And that's where we need to be. Um, and, then, and then, you know, exponentially you would say, you know, so the communities have identified this as a need, and we had to do a lot of uh, juggling to find that sweet spot for us about what our priorities would be. Then you overlay the data, uh, you know, the, the public uh, data and the community data, our patient data, and it allowed us just to keep uh, fine-tuning it to the place where we're at today, which is, um, you know, besides the Center for Community Health Advancement and our partnerships, uh, we, we have our first uh, uh, three- to five-year plan uh, that never existed before. Um, we have four priorities, nine goals, 22 objectives. That's what we've committed to. Um, we're successful in terms of uh, securing grant dollars, which helps the system um, as well. Um, but those those priorities are um, uh, affectionately known as our ABCs. And when we rolled those out, it... Um, we knew that there needed to be some marketing involved in this, so it's not like we chose those priorities and said ABCs, but uh, I'm, I'm convinced now with even our steering committee, which is new, and so they hold us accountable, and we're responsible to, um, to our efforts to that steering committee. Um, I'm, I'm fairly confident that if we said, what does ABCs mean, that every executive in this health system would be able to list it. Um, and so that ABCs is alcohol and substance abuse, behavioral health, chronic disease, and social determinants of health. Those are the five, are the four areas we've committed to the next three to five years. Um, and, and then underneath those, obviously, are our goals and, and, and uh, um, tactics that we're working through. So that allows us to be transparent with both internal and external partners. It allows us to uh, communicate to folks where we're going and opportunities to collaborate. Um, it gives us discipline to say no, which is sometimes very difficult to do. I think we, we have a tendency to want to do everything, um, but this gives us discipline and, and the courage to say no to those different things. Um, they're, they're very audacious uh, goals um, to say that we're going to do uh, focus on AODA, which is in Wisconsin's, uh, you know, we're one of the largest binge drinking states in, in the nation, or on the behavioral health side to say, uh, you know, we have some of the highest suicide rates in, in our communities, or chronic disease when we're up against obesity and tobacco and prediabetes and diabetes and social determinants of health, which in itself is huge. So, um, you know, that's where the goals come into place and allow us to kind of target where we think the biggest opportunity is to move those levers. Um, one of the things that we uh, were able to do, too, is we reviewed every uh, county. And our, our service area changes. If you use the health plan's footprint, it's bigger. The clinic's footprint, it's all over. Uh, but we did sit down with nearly every health department and engage them in some way, reviewed every one of their community health needs assessments. Um, and, and we ended up, um, as a litmus test, almost aligning with 95% uh, of our communities. So that was reassuring that we did our own due diligence but still lined it up where they needed us the most. Um, behavioral health is listed as, uh, if you look at a one service area, um, you know, behavioral health is listed as a top priority in 47 of the 49 counties. Hmm. Interesting. 
and and they looked at the health system to say how how can you help um, you know the answer isn't always about bringing in providers it's about trying to get far uh, as far upstream as we possibly can so that someday there may not be as big a need for a provider. Um, so that's type of the, the, the type of work that we're, we're moving forward with. Um, so the Center for Community Health Advancement uh, is what I call um, our own system's public health department. It's the best way I can put it. Public health has been doing this work for centuries. We're just now getting in a game and, and trying to align a little bit more with what the communities are needing and providing our own public health type of programming. The, the binge drinking piece is interesting to me. I think even WPR is doing a series right now on the impact of uh, alcohol and, and binge drinking on Wisconsinites. It's so culturally ingrained here. Can you talk about the scope of the problem and, and how you guys frame it and, and what, what can be done about it? So, you know, the culture in Wisconsin is very interesting. There's no doubt about it. Uh, we do have one of the highest binge drinking states in the nation. We have one, uh, if I recall, one of the lowest uh, alcohol taxes in the nation. Um, we have one of the highest uh, drunk driving rates in the nation. Um, there's been programs along the way, um, you know, that have really attempted to uh, address a number of those factors, uh, safe and sober cabs, um, um, last call type of programs. We have responsible um, uh, server courses. Uh, even within our own health system, we have AODA treatment facilities that are being popped up. Uh, on the prevention side, we continue to work with schools on a number of their initiatives. Uh, some of the things that are relatively new that we're trying to focus in on is uh, uh, AODA recovery work sites. So as these individuals are recovering, trying to get them back into the mainstream with work sites that would um, uh, employ these individuals and work with them. Uh, we're using volunteers to help, uh, help people go through recovery, uh, to provide that social support. Bottom line on this one, it's a cultural thing. It really is. We can put a lot of money towards stigma and uh, trying to change that culture. Um, this isn't one that's, I mean, frankly, is not going to go away from anytime soon. Uh, the closest I can compare it to is tobacco. How did the state become, how did the state do so well in seeing a reduction in tobacco use? they increase the tax significantly. Policy change is the most effective way to reduce any behavior. Um, that's not going to happen in Wisconsin. Um, so this is one I think that out of all of them that we have in our portfolio, it's just going to take some time chipping away on um, a little at a time. And similarly, the, the opioid epidemic is obviously something that nationally and statewide is there's no shortage of headlines um, and I know we're doing a lot of work related to that with our communities can you talk about some of the efforts to curb uh, that epidemic yeah I think that as a health system we've done a good job um, looking internally and externally so um, you know before I speak about the opioid and our efforts um, you know, it's always important for us as we go into the communities that we always look internally first. We'll get called on a carpet every time. Uh, if we're not doing what we're supposed to be doing with our own 10,000-plus uh, employees or we're not having policies in place or if we're not focusing on anything and then we go into the communities and say, we think it's important that you do it. 
and then they ask, well, what are you guys doing for that? Um, it, it's never bodes well. So, um, you know, in terms of uh, opioid, uh, internally and externally, we've done a good job. Internally, pain medicine um, and, and t- taking a look at uh, efforts around there and reducing uh, uh, prescriptions and dose and, uh, limit prescriptions. Uh, I know the health plan with their pharmacy benefit manager uh, had put in a number of checks and balances in terms of prescribing. So uh, there needs to be overrides now at the pharmacy level, if a certain uh, um, prescription level is prescribed, uh, you can only, it's monitored a lot more closely now, so you can't just go from pharmacy to pharmacy and pick up scripts, because that's all managed now. Um, And the override feature forces the pharmacist to actually um, make a conscious choice to do something if they know it's not right. Um, and then, of course, you have, uh, you know, our, um, our treatments facilities uh, that FHC oversees. Uh, Dr. Larson Manakwa is the pain medicine doc. Uh, they've done a lot of work, um, not just within our service area and have seen significant results, um, but also at a state and national level. So it's nice to be recognized from there. Our partners in IQIPS have done some really great things as well. So we weren't slow to respond. I just don't think we knew what was coming. Mm-hmm. And I do believe that we're one of the state leaders in in that effort um, as as uh, you know parent and you've been a part of this where we've been asked to put together white papers etc for folks in DC uh, and that are all very interested in the work we're doing on the community side um, you know we've been fortunate to receive some federal dollars from DOJ from uh, HRSA and others around drug-free communities um, we on a regular basis do drug uh, take-back events which have been extremely successful um, again not one initiative is solved this, but it's a compilation of a lot of them that help out. Um, we, we more recently, well, it's not more recently now because time flies, but uh, several years ago uh, purchased um, drug drop-off kiosks for all of our sites throughout our health system. We felt that it was an obligation and responsibility to our communities that if we're prescribing, that we better set up a mechanism for people to safely return prescription drugs. So, um, you know, we, we worked with a company and had those brought in so people can safely dispose their medications anytime. They don't have to wait for a drug take-back event. Uh, our recovery courts program, um, uh, which is uh, part of our AmeriCorps suite of programs, uh, more recently uh, was um, selected as the governor's um, program of the year through the service community service programming. Um, and so that program basically, uh, it, it, to me, is an amazing model. Um, uh, individuals can um, join AmeriCorps, which they receive um, an educational stipend. They get health insurance. They get a, a regular paycheck, per se. Um, and then we, we train them. So it's a workforce competency, uh, workforce development thing. And then they become recovery coaches. And so in order to become a recovery coach, you yourself had to have gone through recovery or you must have known somebody, a family member, et cetera, that somehow you were impacted in that model. It's not clinical. Most of this work isn't clinical. It doesn't have to be. Um, and so these individuals provide care coordination-like services. They, they're there to help uh, to listen to the individual as they're going through recovery. They're there to make sure that they have transportation. They're there to make sure that, you know, that they're avoiding risky behaviors. It's not clinical. Um, they just need that extra hand uh, as they're going through recovery themselves. So 
Um, and we continue to look for other uh, programs um, that um, help with both the prevention side but also the recovery side. Um, you know, we've invested in Narcam and programs as such to help with the acuity of, of, of different uh, uh, opioid um, initiatives. Um, the schools are always interested and willing to do stuff. We provide funding, uh, a grant program on a regular basis to our community so they, they can apply on topics that are important to them. We want to make sure we're not too prescriptive in, in the programs and services because we know each community is local and they have local needs. Uh, so we got a lot going on in this area. I mentioned uh, drug-free recovery, uh, drug-free um, um, work sites and working with communities uh, or um, employers on policies so they feel comfortable and confident of bringing people back into the workforce. So there's just a plethora of different initiatives that we have. Um, some are simple, like I mentioned earlier. Some are more complicated and complex. Uh, you know, Ryan Atsky and his team and Brad, uh, they do a great job uh, monitoring legislation that we would be interested in both at a state and national level and making sure that we're uh, in the game in terms of uh, driving policy. Um, all those things are extremely important. So um, lots going on in that area for sure. I'm interested in the the behavioral health piece too. I, I want to revisit something you said. I think you said 47 out of 49 counties. Maybe I'm getting that number wrong, but nearly every county that you've gone out and talked to has, has talked about that being sort of a top need. And, you know, I know there's barriers in terms of stigma surrounding behavioral health in terms of people coming forward and being able to talk about mental health issues. I know there's there's funding shortages. Can you talk about, and one of the things I, I know you guys are doing is, is embedding with the schools. Uh, I believe it's through your BEST program. Can you talk about what that program is and your overall uh, efforts in the behavioral health space? Sure. So there are a number of things we're doing. This is the area I'm probably the most proud of because it's relatively new to the center. Uh, we had always dabbled in, in this space, but now we have a more comprehensive strategy around it. And so um, there are a number of things, again, back to that more simple uh, interventions where we more recently uh, facilitated the, um, you know, the look up initiative here in Marshfield, which is, you know, set your phones down, engage with your kids. That's a simple behavioral health initiative, but it's actually highly effective to uh, public showings of different uh, um, uh, videos in the community that engage and, and spark communication and conversation among parents and teens. Um, so the ripple effect would be one that we've had here in Marshfield and had an amazing showing and that since we've rolled it out to, we're rolling it out to all of our communities um, that have hospitals we made it available we'll pay for it we'll facilitate it etc um, other initiatives is you know uh, the the whole concept of internal external so we know that we do have some high rates of suicide in some of our communities um, you know the data and I, I don't have it in front of me but uh, from the youth risk behavioral survey uh, here in Marshfield was showing that seven um, percent of children had attempted to commit suicide. And that's not a national fact. That's a Marshfield statistic. And I believe it was somewhere around 15 or 16 percent had contemplated. So, you know, there's some there's some real root cause issues here that we're trying to solve um, and, and work through. Uh, but to that point, um, you know, the system has uh, has been so supportive with, uh, you know, Dr. Disanyanki and Dr. Shuline, Dr. Shane, Sandy Bump, uh, our staff, and uh, we're actually doing the internal part of this is a program called Zero Suicide. 
and it's a large, very large lift and initiative. Um, and it's really meant for our internal look at our own policies. It's a nationwide campaign through Wisconsin Hospitals, or um, the uh, National Hospital Association. And really, it's meant to look at what we're doing inside our walls to prevent suicides, um, in particular among our patients. Um, uh, some uh, I'm gonna uh, I'll mess up the statistic exactly, but it's it's I want to say 70 to 80 percent individuals that have committed suicide had seen their healthcare provider within 90 days previous to that. So, so looking for those warning signs and asking the right questions and having policies in place to help support that, that's what Zero, Su Zero Suicide is all about. It's about making sure people are trained. And so it's a heavy lift, and I'm very proud of that initiative. Um, uh, you know, uh, Jody Chinaki is our lead here. Um, she's got an amazing background in this area. So that's a, a huge lift for us, and we'll be, um, and that's something we're proud to share with our communities, that that's our part in working on reducing uh, a suicide among our communities, which is false within that behavioral health uh, bucket. You know, other things we've done is we've committed to train as many people as we can on QPR, which is question, persuade, and refer. And it's a highly effective um, uh, process in terms of identifying people and making sure they're getting uh, the right help they need um, as soon as they can. And so uh, examples of that is, you know, training a number of school districts and their staff, um, we more recently with a technical college just uh, signed an agreement that uh, we'll train and, and, and invest in their programming, but they will train everyone that goes to their technical college uh, beginning this fall. So thinking about not just us having to deliver and train people, but in this model, it's sustainable where they're going to train every fire person that comes through EMS, law enforcement, uh, uh, on how to be QPR uh, certified. That's significant. That's a thousand people per year that will be trained and, um, and, and can move that forward and can help with, um, you know, helping prevent suicide. Uh, YouthNet's another one. YouthNet's been around Marshfield since the 1980s. It focuses on after-school programming for what you would consider at-risk children. You have to be referred into the program. There's uh, some criteria and eligibility. Um, we know it's a good program. Um, and so we've committed to moving that program out into our communities to at least two new communities by the end of our five-year plan. Uh, so you know, today we're having uh, uh, dialogue with uh, the, the city of Manaqua to say, is this community ready for a program like this? They have no after-school program. They certainly don't have a program that addresses at-risk youth. Um, it seems like a good fit. But before we offer a program, I go back to my original comments earlier, which is, we don't just bring the program to the community. We're going through a pretty exhaustive feasibility conversations with them to say, what does this look like here in Manaqua? Are you interested? Who would be involved? How would this be sustainable? It can't just be another Marshfield Clinic Health System program. That's not how programs are sustainable or owned. They gotta be community owned. So, um, you know, YouthNet's a great program that falls in that bucket. You know, Randy Neve has done a great job around adding layers to that, uh, social emotional uh, support and learning groups. Uh, we do trauma care training. Jen Smith is seen as a national expert. She's gone to Alaska, Iowa. She's going all over the place because of the uh, expertise she provides. And, uh, um, you know, so there's all these components around behavioral health. 
you mentioned best, and best is probably the one that has in our in our center probably has the largest reach and dose in terms of impacting people. Um, this is a program that's another partnership uh, started five years ago, I believe, with a, a community grant program we roll out, and we try to invest in our communities. We see these as almost pilot sites and petri dishes to say, go ahead and give it a try, and if it works, we're interested in talking more. Um, it was a grant that uh, Dr. Hartwig, who was the um, um, uh, executive director of special, uh, a Marathon County Special Education Program, had developed. Um, he wanted to try it. After the first year, we were hooked. Yeah. We didn't even we didn't even talk to him about a grant anymore. We said, "Let's. This is a partnership for us." So it has truly been one of the best partnerships we've ever had. Dr. Hartwick is amazing. It's about people. Um, and uh, this year alone, we've, we've grown this program so much that this year alone, um, I think we're going to be in over 50 school districts, not schools, districts. Uh, uh, I think we've screened over 125,000 children for behavioral and emotional traits. So this is thinking upstream. It's not diagnostic. We're not saying that you have a condition. We're just saying that there's something there. There's 26 risk factors that we look at. Um, and what it allows us to do is to help not just identify those kids and do uh, interventions with them and then reassess, but a big component of this is really around training educators. They don't go to school to learn about how to be behavioral health people. And so in this case, Dr. Hartwig provides uh, hands-on consultation, trainings to these school districts about how to deal or work with parents and children who have high-risk behaviors, uh, simple things, simple things as uh, I'm not going to get any of this because, you know, it's more on, the, uh, you know, he's, he's the expert in this area, but uh, simple tools that they can use for redirection or to work with the child to bring their anxiety down. Uh, he recognizes that, you know, uh, uh, in, in his 40-year career that, teachers get upset you know uh, they see Johnny as a troublemaker uh, well Johnny may be an introvert and you just need to work with Johnny differently so the best program has really opened the doors for a lot of different things a lot of partnerships that we had not planned for unexpected partnerships with school districts um, in just a few weeks we'll hold our first ever um, best institute here on our campus in Marshfield we're over a hundred educators uh, counselors Behavioral health people from schools will be on site for two full days, um, receiving uh, training from Dr. Hartwig and others on best expectations, how to use the tool, and then more of that wraparound education um, to help build some of their knowledge and expertise in this area. So the program continues to grow. Um, it's an amazing program. But beyond that, uh, as, as I mentioned, I, I think I gave five or six examples, the work that we're doing in behavioral health on the community side is pretty fascinating. Um, and I know there's a lot more examples I'm missing, but uh, clear, clearly we hear from our communities that we're stepping up to the plate in response to doing uh, uh, work and strategies on behavioral health in the community. If we were going to talk about all the issues in, in public health and everything that the health system is doing, this would probably be the never-ending podcast, which I don't think anyone wants. Um, so I, I'd like to close on a sort of a personal note and, and ask you, why did you sort of want to be involved in, in community and public health in the first place, and why is it something you're so passionate about? Well, yeah, I can share that. So there's a there's a personal reason why I I ended up getting involved in health period, um, and and it just kind of took a life of its own. And 
I think I was fortunate and lucky through various mentors along my career that helped guide me, um, which is very near and dear to me as a, uh, an executive now to make sure that people leave the center and are better than when they came here. Actually, I take no better pride than when somebody leaves our center and takes a better job. Uh, that actually feels really good to me. Um, but in terms of how I got into public health, um, so my father, uh, who is an amazing man in himself, um, you know, growing up had, I want to say, four heart attacks. He has 11 stents in his body. He has a pacemaker. He's got like 70% capacity in his heart. Um, never worked out. Since he was 15 years old, uh, from Chicago, either from Chicago, um, uh, smoked non-filtered cigarettes, even after the first heart attack and after the second heart attack, um, he, he abused his body. And I watched this going, what is he, what's going on, man? I mean, uh, you know, you can see what you're doing to yourself. And even to the point I remember as a, as a child in the back of an LTD driving down the road, and it's the middle of winter, and the car is full of smoke. And I remember saying, can you crack the window a little bit maybe? And, and that would be a nice thing for him to do because he would say, it's cold outside. But we didn't know what we know today. And so all those behaviors were extremely interesting to me, not just on the health side, but human behavior. And so I, I started my career in, 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 in going down cardiac rehab, and then it changed a few times. And I was turned on by a professor um, in my undergrad program that exposed me to population health and community health. And I thought, why would I want to impact one person at a time where I can impact 10,000 people? That doesn't make I mean, that to me is just a, a, a no-brainer. And so from that, I started learning more about community health. I, I uh, did some interns, and I just absolutely loved it, loved it. And then more recently, and I would say in the last decade, as health systems started to look at this going, huh, look at that. You can actually get some stuff done here with uh, that population health thing and community health if we're doing it right. And so that was exciting, and, and I, I'm watching this, you know, as, as, I, as I was in governmental public health for a decade, and I'm watching this, and I thought, I should go to school and get my health care degree, which I did. So I had a master's in healthcare care administration, and honestly, they were just born. <laughs> Um, I, I would like to say that I had mapped this all out in a perfect sequence. I'd be lying to you, I think, through uh, some mentors and some people pulling me under their wing and, um, you know, pushing me in areas. Uh, this is where I ended up, and uh, I absolutely love this work. I, I, I can't think of another job that I would rather do more. It, it's about engaging people. It's about working with communities. It's about doing good things. It's about being... Um, you know, innovative and trying new things. So, um, yeah, it's an interesting story how I ended up where I'm at, but um, I'm, I'm, I'm super happy to be here. Jay Schrader is the Vice President of Community Health and Wellness for Barshfield Clinic Health System. Jay, thank you for sharing some time and, and your knowledge with us today. I think it's a, a fascinating topic and uh, only wish we had more time. Thank you. Thank you, Adam. Appreciate it. Anytime. You can subscribe to The Rounds and download episodes via iTunes or by visiting shine365.marshfieldclinic.org. Thank you for joining us today. I'm Adam Hawking, and I hope you'll join us next time on The Rounds.